Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series. Hello, and welcome back to Codish. My name is Jonan Scheffler. I'm a developer advocate here at Heroku, and I'm joined today by my good friend, Nicholas Means. Nick, say hello, introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. I'm Nicholas Means. I am a senior engineering manager at GitHub and frequent speaker at conferences. Frequent speaker at conferences, which is why I wanted to have you on the show today. Um, I think that you probably, uh, being the humble person that I know you to be, sell yourself a little short when you describe your speaking at conferences some of the times. Um, Nick is a prolific speaker and has a fantastic presentation style that I admire. I uh, get real frustrated with uh, presentations that bore the audience uh, needlessly. There are some topics that are just dry and I understand it's difficult, but there are small changes you can make to the way that you are making your presentations and making your slides that will be invaluable to holding your users attention. And I bet that you, Nick, have some ideas on how we might do that. I don't think it's easy necessarily. You have a very unique presentation style. I think it's easy for any of us to recreate it. So don't give away the secret sauce. <laughs> I don't know that I know the secret sauce to give it away if I wanted to. Right. Yeah. I think one thing that we probably both agree on is that bullet points are a bad idea in a presentation. Absolutely. I try to actually minimize the number of words that are in my slide deck, and I, I do typically only pictures if I can get away with it. So if you can get away with an entire deck that only has photos and no words at all in the slides, you would do that. And I would. you find this is... So um, we were talking a little bit on the way over here about the value of narrative in this presentation. And this is a thing that we all learned when we were in school. We were ta taught to write our first essays. It's like, do an outline, right? What are you trying to say? How are you going to get there? You tell them what you are going to tell them, and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them, and then you're done, right? Right. Um, but But... Tell me a little bit more about that, about how you make your presentations around a narrative. So I think when I first started trying to speak at conferences, I was sort of stuck in that same mindset where I needed three bullet points, and that was that was my presentation. Typical, like, I don't know, for lack of a better description, like church sermon approach. Um, you're standing on stage, and you're just uh, proselytizing. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And uh, I, I think the thing that really changed it for me and, and unlocked some keys to how to do this well was seeing uh, Russ Olson's To the Moon presentation. Oh, a fantastic yeah, presentation. amazing presentation. And it, it sort of clued me into the idea that you can just tell a story and make some connections. And it's a really resonant way to get people to learn something because they really don't realize you're teaching them anything the whole time. Right. That's the thing, is that people want to hear a story. Mm -hmm. They're attached to stories. The, a collection of data points about a subject is not a story. Yeah. But if you want to engage me and actually teach me, then I'm going to come along for the ride if it's a story. You get about you know, two, two to five minutes for free of my attention when yeah. you're talking to me. I, I, I say five minutes is pretty ambitious, actually. If yeah. the topic is real dry, you may not get five minutes of my attention. For and I think that's true for most of us. Right. And then if, if, if I just keep piling it on, one of the techniques that I've seen used to great effect in a presentation is to keep your, your individual points that you're trying to make short and sweet. In about mm -hmm. a two to three minute period of time, you're talking about one or, or two slides worth of data, and then you're, you're pivoting. You're moving on to another topic, and it keeps people's attention fresh. Mm -hmm. They have to now pay attention because they're onto another thing. Right. Instead of deep diving deep where they start to suspect maybe 
but maybe it's just uh, attentional laziness, or maybe we start to suspect that we're not going to require this depth of knowledge on this particular bullet point. There's probably right. some more coming down the pipeline, right? Yeah. So when you are constructing a narrative, this presentation you gave here, we're here at Traversal, mm -hmm. uh, Traversal Conf in Denver, Colorado. This is the first Traversal, isn't it? I think it is, yeah. It was, an, it was adapted from another conference. Yeah, from Rocky Mountain Ruby. Rocky Mountain Ruby was the old conference, and uh, it has been repurposed as Traversal, which aims to, I think, bridge software communities uh, it, instead of just being Ruby Just specific. being Ruby, right, yeah. Uh, but the conference was great, your talk was very well received, and you spoke about the Eiffel Tower as an analogy for um, uh, what I would guess like professional relationship management? So when I started writing this talk, I, I got the idea to do this when we were in France last summer uh, with my whole family and looking at the Eiffel Tower. And I was like, I bet there's a fascinating story there to tell. And I sort of embarked on trying to figure out how to tell the story without having any idea where it was going, without having any idea what kind of point I wanted to draw from it. And about halfway through the research I did for it, I, I wanted to avoid the building metaphor because that's the obvious thing. It's like you're building software and there's the building a tower, there's a metaphor to be drawn there. But it's, it's, it's too obvious. I didn't want to do that. Right. And about halfway through, I realized how much political turmoil and effort Gustav Eiffel went through to try to get the rights to build this tower. The Eiffel Tower, we were talking about as a, a way to discuss politics, mm -hmm. I guess, in the workplace and the role that they play, or yeah. maybe communication is a better way to put it. it, it it's not, it, it's more about being willing to engage in the process. I mean, because there's this temptation as software engineers to just keep your head down and write code and let all this stuff happen over your heads. All the meeting invites. And there's, there's a stat that I quote from a Wall Street Journal study in the talk where 83% of people choose not to engage in office politics in a meaningful way. They may pay attention to it, but they don't engage in it. Right. And the reality is you actually can't affect change in an organization without engaging in the political structure of that organization because politics is sort of morally ambiguous. It's neither good nor bad. It's all in the implementation. Right. It is known as uh, somewhat of a hot-button subject, though. Mm -hmm. I think that like, if there was a good or bad to politics, it is mostly bad mostly in most bad. people's minds. Absolutely, yeah. You don't hear a lot of people say, well, you know, politics, I'm politics. not saying it's good or it's bad. No, most people are like, all right, it's bad. Well, and Politicking is evil. And that's part of why I like this approach to this topic in particular, because if you saw a talk about organizational politics right. on a, a conference list out, would you go to that talk? Probably not. But that's the thing. It's a super valuable topic, and it's a hard one to talk about in a productive way without right. making people bored, without making them uncomfortable, without making them feel gross. So by telling this story and then drawing on specific things that Gustav Eiffel does in the process of securing the rights to build the tower and building the tower, I can, I, I can teach something about how to engage in politics in a productive way that doesn't feel gross and scummy. Right. And this is the value of having the particular presentation style that you have. So, right. This, this Eiffel Tower presentation, how many slides had words on them? Uh, if you don't count labels, none. All right. So you would label the photographs that you Yeah, there's a lot things. of photographs that are labeled, and then there's a lot of historical documents that have French words on them. But yes. it's pictures of the documents. Ah, this is another good point, actually. So when I'm putting up a slide, not only do I try to minimize the words uh, at all, but if I'm putting up something like a code sample, I, I know that even if you, and people do it all the time, even if you tell people to the audience, like, I'm going to put this text up here, but it's not important for you to read it. Yeah. Every single person has failed to hear the entirety of your disclaimer right. because they're not reading the text and ignoring yeah. everything you're saying. So if you put the words up on the slide and you actually want people to read through them all, it happens a lot in, I think uh, software developers are, are getting more in tune to this. You're seeing a lot 
uh, higher quality of presentation on right. average now in the software development communities. But in other communities, I walk by a, a doctor's convention somewhere, and there's a slide with 55 bullet points, and they're just all medical terms, you know. Right. And, and what people don't understand, I think, is that you are doing your listeners a disservice by presenting so much information. You're actually setting them up for failure because as you're explaining the information they're digesting, they're getting it without context. Right. They're reading your slide and not listening to your explanation of said slide because they're reading at right. the same time. There actually is one slide that has words on it. It's a tweet from Jason Fried, and I may actually remove it before I give the pre presentation the next time. You didn't. You want to take it out? You think? I think I want to take it out because I, I do definitely lose a bit of audience attention when that slide is on the screen. Right. You can see mm -hmm. it. You can feel it as a speaker as yeah. the whole audience tunes you out. Um, so the the concepts we have covered and put put less text on your slides. Um, use uh, big, beautiful pictures in your slides if you want to be exactly the Nick Means style. You, are, you always find the best photographs in these presentations. You can go and look up all of Nick's presentations on Confreaks uh, by name. We'll, I'll put a link in the, the show notes. But uh, these images, where do you get all of these? You are, I, I hope, respecting licenses and like looking for Creative Commons licenses. I, I use Creative Commons when I can. Most of the subjects I talk about, there's not a lot of stuff out there that's specific enough under a Creative Commons license to use. Uh -huh. So a lot of it's original historical photographs that I use under fair use. Yes, okay. So you go and uh, you find these images and you are fitting your narrative already. So you knew the story you wanted to tell when you started out, which mm -hmm. was that you wanted to to talk about um, politics being basically unavoidable, and yet 83% of us uh, don't participate. Right. So you are not affecting change in your organizations, you're limiting your career growth if you mm -hmm. are not addressing this thing, and here is why it's important, because someone once did some politicking in order to build an Eiffel Tower, right. an Eiffel and, Tower. And the, uh, the politicking that he had to do was with the French government, which is inevitably more bureaucratic than anything any of us have to deal with. Yes. So uh, aside from the things that we've covered, what other advice do you have for uh, presenters, aspiring presenters out there. I mean, someone wants to get involved and give their first conference talk, and I always encourage people to make this happen early in your career. Mm -hmm, absolutely. What advice do you have for them? Uh, I, I think one of the most crucial bits of advice is don't feel like you have to have deep expertise on a subject to get on stage and talk about it. Exactly. The thing you don't realize is that as you build a talk, you will earn your expertise on that subject as you do the research. Conference-driven development. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that will motivate you to learn like the abject fear of being on stage and appearing uneducated about your topic. <laughs> because I will go and submit these abstracts, and you know, some of them are talks that I've uh, already got an idea for in my head, or maybe I've started some work on. But sometimes I come up with an idea and I write it down. And I'm like, that's a great idea for a talk. And mm -hmm. then they accept it, and then I have to. Then write you have to it. write the talk. Oh. I still remember. So my very first conference talk was at RailsConf, and it was on imposter syndrome. Uh huh. And I remember the initial excitement of getting the email that my talk had been accepted, followed very quickly by the sinking feeling of realizing that I had to actually develop the talk now. Yes. And the talk ended up being a meta story about getting a talk accepted at RailsConf and all of the feelings that I went through, all of the imposter syndrome things that happened. Nice. That's actually It was really, really a lot of talk. fun. Yeah. And I, uh, for those who maybe are unfamiliar with the term imposter syndrome, describing the general feeling that you don't belong that yeah. affects many of us in software and in life in general. Absolutely. So uh, other tips for them. One, one uh, don't worry too much that you don't know your subject matter up front. You will mm -hmm. learn it. You will be driven to learn it. In fact, I have often chosen talk topics based on things I wanted to learn. All of mine are that way. I mean, so my, my style of presentation requires a lot of research, like two or three books per talk at least. Right. And so most of the time when I'm picking a topic, it's just because it's something that I want to geek out about for a while. 
Do you read books the same way I do, where you put them on your bedstand and they just soak them up while you're sleeping? Yeah. Yeah. That's Most of the time, yeah. The osmosis approach uh-huh. to learning, yeah. So Caleb Thompson, uh, a friend of both of ours, taught me a term for this. It's tsundoku. Yes. The Japanese term uh-huh. is where I was headed exactly next, which is fantastic. Uh, this is a term to describe that you are a book collector. I am. Yes. I am a, you, you have many books that you have very good intentions of reading someday. Someday. I, I collect books to be read. So... You choose your topic, you put out your uh, your CFP submissions, mm-hmm. and you can find all of these for the Ruby world specifically on rubyconferences.com. Is it a .com or a .org? I can't remember if it's .com or .org. Either way, try both of them. Yeah. One of them says you'll, Ruby You'll get it right and put it in the show notes. I will put it in the show notes. I'll get it right and I'll put it down. Uh, you can go there and find these. And don't get... Um, upset when you were declined a lot of times. No. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's like applying for a job. and You put out 100 and you get a couple back and then you have to write some talks. Well, and that's another interesting point. The uh, the work that you have to do to respond to a CFP is orthogonal to the work that it takes to develop a good talk. Because a CFP response is really just good sales copy. That's all it is. Right. So the, um, the thing that I am typing into this form to get my talk accepted uh, is unrelated to my ability to prepare and deliver that talk, you yep. are saying that I, like basically, I've had pretty good success with CFPs I have to, over the yeah. years, uh, and most likely because I have a little bit of a sales and a marketing background. Mm-hmm. I know how to put a hook in there and my pitch, and come on down and learn how to blah 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 blah. And you know how to center it on your audience. I mean, I've I've done the the RubyConf CFP review before. I've been on the the conference committee. And one of the things you quickly realize is that most people don't frame their proposals in terms of what they would like to teach the audience. Yes, that's exactly what I'm looking for in a schedule. When I'm reading through these abstracts, go go take one of those schedules yourself and look through all those abstracts. Pick out the ones you admire and ask yourself why. Try and figure out what it is about a good abstract that you like and then yeah. just replicate that. Sarah May has a wonderful blog post. I think the title is What Your Conference Proposal is Missing. Yes. That goes into a lot of this sales copy and the the way to frame your mind around how to write one of these in a way that's going to be appealing to the people that are actually making these decisions for conferences. I really appreciate about the Rails community that they offer a lot of support to Mm -hmm. new speakers around that. There are all sorts of uh, mentorship opportunities. If you're an experienced speaker or you're looking to be mentored, you want someone to look at your abstracts before you go and submit them. There are all these resources in place. And again, I will provide you some links to those in the show notes. Um, I think another interesting thing to call out is when you're a new speaker, it's often tempting to keep your proposals limited to smaller conferences. Mm. And that's actually a terrible strategy. Because the smaller the conference, typically the more selective their talk process is because they want to keep the level of content high, whereas a larger conference has more slots available and can afford to take more risks on newer speakers. And so if they don't know that you're an accomplished speaker and they're trying to roll the dice, it's uh, more likely that's going to happen in a larger venue. Yep. Absolutely. So what scale are we talking about for large? We're talking about a regional RubyConf as opposed to RubyConf itself, or are we talking about like OzCon or reInvent? I mean, I think RubyConf, RailsConf is about the right scale for a first conference talk. Yeah. And the other thing I like about those conferences in particular is that they employ a blind review process. Their first step is completely blind. So you as a new speaker are not disadvantaged until after your talk has already been scored by the conference committee. And uh, so that they wouldn't know that I have these crazy sideburns when they go in. Yeah, they they wouldn't know anything about that. This is actually a a really valuable piece of a conference screening process. I think there is something to be said for presentation ability. I would like to see an approach that combines that element of anonymity, Mm -hmm. right? Because I do think it gets us a more balanced... A a group of people uh, will find something to be homogenous about, and they will continue self-selecting to maintain that 
homogeneity. This is right. what human beings do. We put things into groups, and we, we like to do it, and we have to fight against that instinct because in situations like that, when you're uh, accepting proposals for your conference, if you, for example, have five white men on your review committee for talks, I would be willing to bet the majority of your talks accepted will be written by white men. Yep, absolutely. White men, turns out, like the way white men sound. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you need to mix those things up, and, yeah. and the blind review process helps, but what it doesn't help me with is knowing whether or not someone is a charismatic, engaging speaker. Right. Yeah, I don't think that there is a good way to, to, to solve no, that piece. No, I don't think there is either. I mean, it's it's hard. I think you do, you do a blind sift. That's a great step. Some conferences after that will ask you to submit a video as part of your CFP process, ah. which as a new speaker is tough. Yeah, that yeah. is tough. You want to be careful that you don't limit people. I have also seen people ask for um, just video of you speaking about a thing, mm -hmm. period, or even like to get on a hangout. I guess if you do it in a two-phase process like that, maybe it helps to, right. to, to have that. Um, but again, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do well. Yeah, right? Many, absolutely. many conferences fail all the time. Uh, so you get out there, you submit to RubyConf, you're submitting on a technical topic for your first topic. Would you advise someone to go technical or non-technical for their first talk? Because this is a choice that every speaker makes. Am I going to give a, a talk, or commonly known as a soft talk, that's a little bit less technical, or right. something that dives very deeply on a technical topic? What would you advise? I don't know if there's a right answer there. I mean, for me, I, my first was, it, it was a talk on imposter syndrome, so it was not technical at all. And... The, iron, the ironic thing here is I felt like after I did that talk and was successful with it, I had to turn around and do a technical talk to prove myself, yep. to prove that I belonged. Yep. And the talk that I did is by far my least favorite talk that I've ever done. Yeah. I was just miserable on stage the whole time I was giving that talk. It's hard when you are forcing yourself into doing things. I always advise people that, like, above all else, choose something you're passionate about because yeah. that passion comes through. It does, and you're going to live with it for a while. Yes. You, you, you don't realize how much time you're going to spend in this topic as you try to develop a talk on it. Uh, it's, just, it's, a, it's an involved process if you're doing it correctly. Absolutely. But I think by following like some simple rules, like avoiding uh, bullet points, understanding that you only get a few minutes to convey a single mm -hmm. topic to your audience, yeah. um, pairing all of your points to a narrative that you've established say, That's one we haven't talked about yet, and yeah. I know it's something that you and I both follow when we build presentations. We yeah. both try to weave story through our entire talk. Yes. And there's ways to do that where you're making points along the way, and you're not waiting until the end like I do to make your points. Um, but the key is just to have some consistent thread of narrative that winds its way through the whole talk, because it gives the audience something to hold on to, something to go, okay, what's going to happen next? What's the next bit of this story that I'm going to hear? It's a, it's a more satisfying experience for your audience. It feels finished than just conveying random data points. This is, I think, the equivalent of like picking up your favorite uh, mystery novel and then just throw away the last 30 pages. <laughs> read up till there. Like the, the, the nice thing about a cohesive narrative is it has a beginning and a middle and an end. Mm -hmm. It finishes and it feels very finished. Right. You, and you can tell in a presentation when it just kind of tapers off. When, you, when you're watching a presentation where someone has run out of minutes to state facts uh, or when they have a the end, right? Right. And I definitely prefer the latter. Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I think we are uh, ready to wrap up. Is there any last minute advice you would give people in closing here for our presentations? I think the, the best advice is just to do it in general, to get involved, to go give presentations. It's been probably the most career enabling thing that I've done. Uh, building my personal brand, letting people get to know me, letting people know what I stand for. When you're in a job interview, when you're negotiating for salary, if you have spoken at conferences, you've given your potential employer 
essentially a movie trailer of who you are. Exactly. They, they have a better idea of what they are buying by bringing you on board to their company. And the value that you add to the organization. Yep. It's, it's a credibility indicator. It is a credibility indicator, and I know it's scary. It's so hard mm -hmm. to get up there on stage, especially in front of people you respect, your peers. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. Do it anyway. It's so worth yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and the interesting, interesting thing about that is that once I got into this community, I figured out that some of those people are actually the biggest supporters of new speakers. Yep. They will sit on purpose in the front of a room so that they can sit there and be your nodder, so be that they can nodders. smile at you. Really good advice. All right, again, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time. It's yeah, been thanks a pleasure for having, having you. Uh, if, if we uh, have anything else to add as far as resources, please reach out and we'll get them all out to everybody. Yep. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Jenna. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish Podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.